you remember when you first decided to follow Jesus, do you remember that moment when the Holy Spirit illuminated your heart and the light bulb went on, scales fell from your eyes, and you saw the beauty of Jesus and said, I must give my life to following him. No doubt this occurred in very different ways for each of us here. For some of us, it happened in a moment where God surprised us, convicted us, overwhelmed us, and we knew our lives would never be the same. For others of us, maybe it seemed to happen gradually, where little by little, over a long period of time, all your walls and defenses began to melt down until one day you looked back and said, I believe all of this. Somewhere back along the way, God changed your heart, and you don't know when it was, but you know that it happened. Still other of us grew up in church from the nursery until now, and maybe you lived your whole life thinking you were following Jesus. Mom's a Christian, Dad's a Christian, I go to church, I must be a Christian. And then at some point, the Holy Spirit awakened your lifeless, religious heart of stone and gave you a new heart of flesh, and you realized that despite all your Sunday schools and all your attendances, you had never truly trusted your life to Jesus. We could go on. The Lord pursues his people in all kinds of various creative ways. For some, like me, believe it or not, it was an emotional experience. For others... Maybe it was a calm, logical moment when you realized that the Lord called checkmate on all of your defenses and objections and you had no other move but to surrender. Some of us came to Jesus from rock bottom. Others of us were flying high in the world's eyes but were still empty. Some of us, it was a church service. Some of you were with a friend and some of you were just all by yourself. However, it happened, it happened, right? You recognized that God was holy and sovereign, and you were unholy and rebellious. And then with sheer amazement, you recognized that you were not left without hope in your sin and rebellion. But Jesus came and lived the life you could never live, died the death you deserve to die, taking the punishment you deserve for your rebellion, and then rose again victorious over death so that if you would just trust in the cross, God would forgive you and make you alive. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, then I'm assuming that you have already wrestled with the truth that we see presented in our text today. I'm assuming that at some point you have already counted the costs of following Jesus and concluded, Lord, on my own, I've made a mess of my life. You can have it all. But maybe it's just me. But as time passes, it seems like it can be easy to lose sight of some of the most fundamental basics of following Jesus. Today, as we look at a passage that will be familiar to many of us here, I don't have a specific application in mind. I'm not pushing a specific initiative. There's no table in the back. There's no sign-up card. Rather, my aim is to remind us all of the simple truth that As our sovereign Lord, Jesus rightly demands that we be devoted to him above everything. And he will not negotiate for anything less. 
you're here today and somewhere along the way you've lost sight of what Jesus demands from you, if your allegiances have drifted, then my prayer today is that by the scriptures you would be provoked to count the costs all over and embrace the way of the cross. Likewise, if you're here today and you're tired from pouring yourself out, weary from loving your neighbor, unsettled from the burden you feel for non-believers in your life, then my aim is that you would be encouraged by the scriptures that the way of the cross was never supposed to be easy. If that's you this morning, you might be right where God wants you to be, and, it may, and may you be reminded that whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will save it. And lastly, if you're here today and you're investigating Jesus, if you're trying to see what this whole church thing is all about, then first off, welcome. We're glad you're here. And I think this is a great text for you to hear because in this text, you will see all of the cards put on the table and hopefully you will get a glimpse of what following Jesus is all about. Let's read Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. Lord, help us to come under your word, even when it's difficult. God, I pray that you would give us hearts that are open to your word, that hearts that continue to wrestle with this even as we go out from here. God, I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity. I pray that your spirit would speak through me. I pray that your spirit would be active in us doing your work. God, I pray that you would guard me from unnecessarily laying a burden that's not commanded in the scriptures. God, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is unsettling. Jesus' words are shocking 
in their inflexibility. If you're hearing them for the first time, as maybe some of you are, they seem so unyielding that you just want to say, really, Jesus? Really? Let's relax a little. It seems like the kind of passage that when dropped into a church small group, its its meaning might just get whittled away and whittled away until all of its rough edges are made smooth, all the teeth have been taken from it, and it means nothing. What he really means is, well, let's be realistic. Well, what I think, oh, may the Lord help us come under his word in humble submission rather than soften it to our liking. This kind of passage doesn't exactly seem like the kind that will help Jesus grow his kingdom. Lord, I think we might need to lower the bar a little. Let's make the barrier to entry as low as possible. Maybe a few hours on Sunday. People have busy lives, Lord. But when you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't seem too concerned with appeasing the crowds. He doesn't seem too concerned with making his demands more palatable. And it's still, it would appear, his kingdom has grown just fine. This is the kind of passage that reminds you that Jesus isn't merely your Savior, redeeming you from your sin, but he is also your Lord, Master, Boss. He isn't just the great high priest, but he's also prophet and king. And for the seasoned Christian, I would submit that this is the kind of passage that we must be careful with. For one, it is likely familiar, and that familiarity can cause us to treat it as commonplace, trite, yeah, 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 I know that. For two, if you're like me, and I hope you are not, you read the stark words of Jesus and your inner Bible study lawyer starts looking for the loopholes to explain why surely these words don't mean what they seem wonder what this means in their culture. Hmm, what does follow mean in Greek? I need to get a commentary that will explain what he really means. I can save you the time. I read the top six commentaries on this passage, and I didn't get off the hook. Rather, studying the language and the cultural factors in view here only serve to sink the hook in deeper. So two, we have to be careful to let the Bible speak its message and then us come under its message. And three, we also have to be careful that we don't settle for understanding. That we don't settle for understanding the word, but rather once we understand the message with our heads, we must submit to it in our hearts and then it must flow out in our lives. This is not a passage that is difficult to understand. It's intensely difficult to grapple with and live out. It's not sufficient to walk away simply with the knowledge of what Luke 9 teaches. Rather, we must walk away actually seeking to search our lives lives, and see if there's any area that we must surrender to him again. So, the text. Our primary text today is Luke 9, 57 through 62. By way of context, I read just... 
prior to that. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, Jesus had already touched on what it would cost to follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul, forfeits himself? If you were to study through the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51, where we started reading this morning, marks a turn in the book of Luke referred to as the journey to Jerusalem. Where the previous section dealt with his ministry in Galilee, starting in verse 51, on through chapter 19, he's going to draw attention eight different times to Jesus being on a journey to Jerusalem. At least four other times he draws attention more vaguely where he says that Jesus is traveling or Jesus is on a journey. Interestingly, Luke is going to refer repeatedly in this section to Jesus being headed to Jerusalem, even while his route is not necessarily a direct route to Jerusalem. In 951, the language is, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it carries with it the idea of a strong resolve. The NIV, if you have the NIV this morning, it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Again, in 953, we see the same kind of language. The Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So, as Luke writes, he's drawing the reader's repeated attention to the fact that Jesus is now journeying toward Jerusalem. And the journey to Jerusalem is, of course, the journey towards the cross. As we read our passage today, and as we make other reference to other passages in this section of Luke, we read it with the constant reminder that the cross is coming for Jesus. And certainly that is significant to keep in mind. Jesus who speaks these hard-line words is Jesus who is himself headed to die on the cross. On the journey, Luke details three encounters with potential disciples. All three seem well-intentioned, and yet none of them had fully considered the demands of following Jesus. The first man comes to Jesus and is ready to make a commitment. His words are right. I will follow you wherever you go. This would have been a common practice for a student to follow a teacher going to learn from him and also watch his life. But Jesus' reply shows that this man has missed something because Jesus is no ordinary teacher. Jesus' traveling party has just been rejected in a Samaritan village. God in the flesh has entered the world and the people he created don't want anything to do with him. And Jesus wants this would-be disciple to know exactly what he is signing up for. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, in effect, you want to follow me? And you must be willing to be rejected by the world. You want to follow me? I don't even have a place to lay my head. 
if you want to follow me, you must be willing to be rejected by the world. And then the silence in the text seems to say that he was not. Simply put, if you will follow Jesus, you must value your allegiance to him over your allegiance to people's acceptance because following Jesus will mean rejection. Rejection by the world is a repeated promise of the New Testament. Matthew. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, persecute, they will also persecute you. First John, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Question. Is following Jesus causing you to experience rejection by the world? If not, why is that? Is it because... The area that we live in is heavily Christianized. Perhaps, but I'm not convinced. I know this is the South. I know I can go into our parking lot and literally throw a rock to three other churches. I'm not convinced, though. Do we fit in so well because our culture is so assimilated to Christianity? Or is it because our Christianity is so assimilated to the culture? As one commentator puts it, those who would be his disciples then and now must reckon with how identifying with Jesus might place them outside the boundaries of what is acceptable to a world not oriented toward the aim of God. As our sovereign Lord, Jesus rightly demands that we be devoted to him even above acceptance by this world. Moreover, Jesus' words here contain a warning about property. In effect, Jesus asks, will you follow me even if it means you lose everything? Would you pursue my mission if it meant being homeless? Would you give up everything? If not, then turn back now. In a similar passage, a few chapters from this, in Luke 14, Jesus tells the story of a great banquet. The story is meant to expose the kinds of priorities that will keep some from missing God's invitation to the heavenly banquet. It says, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. 
What are the excuses given? Property, work, money. Later still in Luke, but still on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. Most of you know the story. The man comes up to Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says he must keep the commandments. The man says, I've done that. And then Jesus, exposing the man's heart, says, one thing you still lack. See all that you have, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So, if we were the rich young ruler, right, would we pass that test? Like, likely we would all say yes, but how do we know? We read passages like this, and they seem little more than a thought experiment because we likely will never be faced with that stark of a call that will expose whether we love money more than Jesus. So, knowing the answer to the test before we get the test, we conclude yes. When we ought to linger and think on that for a while. Do you ever wonder if your pursuit of money or career has overtaken Jesus as a priority in your life? How can you know? As our sovereign Lord, Jesus rightly demands that we be devoted to him above living comfortably in this world. Jesus' words in the next two encounters are sure to raise some eyebrows. In them, we see that as our sovereign Lord, Jesus rightly demands that we be devoted to him even above family even above the most essential obligations, and even above the most culturally sacred expectations. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Are you kidding me? The man wants to bury his father. That is a hard line. Surely this must be one of those cases where there is something cultural in view. What would this mean in the first century Jewish setting? However, when you understand what it would have meant to the first century setting, it doesn't get easier. One scholar, Howard Marshall, writes, Burial of the dead was a religious duty that took precedence over all others, including even the study of the law. 
priests who were not normally allowed to touch dead bodies could do so in the case of relatives. It follows that the burial of a father was a religious duty of the utmost importance. To leave it undone was something scandalous to a Jew. Naturally, even for us, for Jesus to tell the man not to worry about his father's funeral is striking. But it is altogether offensive to the first century Jew. As another scholar writes, there is hardly one saying of Jesus which more sharply runs counter to law, piety, and custom than does Luke 9.60. Their understanding of the Torah, their whole culture, their whole custom would lead them to think that this man is offering a perfectly valid excuse. Indeed, he is offering a perfectly valid excuse, unless God in the flesh is asking you to follow him. By contradicting a universally acknowledged moral duty, Jesus' words here are a statement of his authority as the sovereign Lord. And his words here make clear that even the most sacred family duty must not delay following him. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There are others who can handle that Less, there's others who can handle that less important family matter, but as for you, there's a more important matter in front of you, namely mission, proclaim the kingdom of God. The second encounter is striking because it seems the man has a very important matter to attend to. The third is striking because it seems like a very tiny request. Even a request with a wonderfully biblical precedent in the Old Testament. First Kings 19, when Elijah calls Elisha to follow him, Elisha is permitted to return home to say his farewells before returning to follow him. But following Jesus is more demanding, more urgent, and requires more devotion than following Elijah. And so Jesus' Jesus's reply to this man is no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're going to plow a field, you must keep your focus in front of you on the task at hand or you'll not plow straight. It's not unlike mowing your lawn. If you're going to mow the lawn, doxa kids, teen hire thing coming up, I'm helping you. If you're going to mow your lawn, you can't mow the lawn straight while looking what's behind you. It's, it won't be straight. You have to keep your focus on what's ahead to make sure you're doing the job right. And so, again, Jesus rightly demands that those who follow him to be, be devoted to him even above the most basic human duties. The book of Luke actually records Jesus' teaching on family repeatedly. Luke 8.20 says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. 
in the great banquet passage alluded to earlier in Luke 14, one of the excuses given for not coming to the banquet is, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. He then explains this great banquet passage by saying, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what can we take from this? What do... Jesus' repeated teachings about family teach us. How might they inform and challenge our view of family? Jesus is not saying that family is not important. He's not saying it's not important. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is more important. For sure, the Bible elsewhere elaborates on some very specific responsibilities the Christian has to his or her family, right? 1 Timothy 3 tells us that an elder must manage his own household well. Ephesians 5 tells us that husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 6 tells us that we are to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I could go on. Yes, for certain, we must bring these other passages into the discussion of family. But we also must necessarily hold those passages about family together with Jesus' repeated assertion that following him is our ultimate obligation. Otherwise, this is what happens. Otherwise, we will get it twisted and we'll believe that following Jesus is just a means to the ultimate end of making your family better when in reality, your family is, a, is the means of your sanctification to help you follow Jesus. If we lose sight of Jesus' demand that even our very family must be surrendered to him, then we can build our whole lives around our families flourishing in a way that is always about what's best for our family. And if our definition of what's best for our family loses sight of kingdom realities, then it actually ceases to be what's best for our family. What do I mean? Sometimes what's best for your family is to leave some work or some to-do list item undone and go sit down with another brother or sister who will point you to Jesus and care for your soul. If you lose sight of kingdom realities, you can put that off and put that off, and in the end, your family suffers because your relationship with Jesus has grown cold. Sometimes what's best for your family is not another game night or another vacation, another weekend camping trip. Sometimes what's best is finding a place your family can look beyond itself and serve and sacrifice together for the kingdom. If you lose sight of kingdom realities, you can lose sight of the fact that part of leading your family spiritually is leading your family to follow Jesus on mission. That's what's best for your family. This is hard. Undoubtedly, 
Some seasons of life are more difficult than others. This is a reality. I need you to hear me. There is a lot of validity to the fact that some seasons of life are difficult. There's reality to the validity that there's different capacity at different stages of life. But hear me about seasons of life. This man just wanted to bury his dad. That's a season of life. Luke 14, he's a newlywed. That's a season of life. By and large, the seasons of life you are in shouldn't dictate whether we follow Jesus in all that he has commanded us. Rather, the season of life must inform the way that we do follow Jesus and all that he has commanded us. And that gives me pause before I write myself an excuse note before my youngest gets out of diapers. As with the rich young ruler passage earlier, the fact is that this passage in Luke 9 is intensely difficult to apply. You will likely never face the same scenarios. Jesus will likely not interrupt your day when you are headed to your dad's funeral. You are unlikely to ever face a situation that requires you to forego saying farewell to your family so that you can follow Jesus, and if you did, you would just FaceTime him anyway, right? But listen, let's not let the uniqueness of the situation prevent us from searching our heart. Let's not let this extraordinary scenario prevent us from asking whether we have valued our families over the kingdom of God. Your family doesn't exist to be the supreme end for which you live your life. Your family exists for an end outside of itself, namely that it would point in word and deed to the glory of Jesus, thereby testifying in action that he actually is the sovereign king of the universe and he deserves our ultimate devotion above everything. As our sovereign Lord, Jesus rightly demands that we be devoted to him even above In the end, well, this passage hits specifically on acceptance and on property and on family. The broader implication is clear. As our sovereign Lord, Jesus rightly demands that we be devoted to him above everything. He will not negotiate for anything less The call to follow Jesus is quite simply the call to surrender everything to him. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Lest this sound like sheer white-knuckled asceticism, we must remember that this path is actually the way to true life. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
The paradox of the kingdom of God is that by giving up your life, you actually gain it. By surrendering it to Jesus, you actually find it. By turning from focus on you to focus on Jesus, you actually get in tune with the purpose for which you were made. And so even this remarkably difficult call to sacrifice is actually a wonderfully rewarding grace given to you by Jesus. Said differently, this kind of life is not the life you live in order that you would be accepted by Jesus. Rather, this is the life you live because you have already been accepted by Jesus. This is the life you live because he has already opened your eyes to the greater beauty of his kingdom over anything the world has to offer. I don't pretend for a moment to know all the details of what the call to follow Jesus means for your life. I'm still wrestling with what that means for mine. Frankly, I haven't had a whole lot of time to think about what it means for your life because I've been thinking so much about what it means for mine. I'm still wrestling with all that it means for my own life and I'm thankful for so many of you here that prod me along in this. But this is what I know. July 17th, 2000, right before my eighth grade year, when the Lord opened my eyes to the glory of Jesus, I was keenly aware that following Jesus would demand a radical reorienting of my life around him and his kingdom. I knew what I was signing up for. If you're here today and a Christian, however it was and whenever it was that Jesus saved you, I think you knew then what you were signing up for. But as time passes, sometimes it's easy to drift from the love that we had at first. My simple question to you is this. Is there any area of your life that you need to surrender anew to Jesus? Is there any area of your life that you've said, Jesus, you can have everything but that? If you're here today and not a follower of Jesus, may you know exactly what it will cost you to follow him. Everything. And my plea to you is this. Come, follow Jesus. Trust in him for forgiveness of your sins and turn your life over completely to his rule and his reign in your life. As our sovereign Lord, Jesus rightly demands that we be devoted to him above everything. Above acceptance by the world, above money and work, above family, above everything. He will not negotiate for anything less. May we together continue to spur one another on towards greatest, greater faithfulness to him. Let's pray. God, Lord, I pray first and foremost, Lord, for my own heart, for my own family, Lord. May you do a work in us. 
God, I pray for all of us here. God, I pray that you would, your spirit would be active, showing us areas of our life that we need to surrender to you. God, I also pray that your spirit would be active, comforting your people. That it wouldn't be, we wouldn't walk out from here with just a list of to-do items or something like that, Lord, but that your spirit would be active, showing each and one of your people in this room how to apply this text. God, I pray that we would be people that are constantly asking the question, is there anything else, Lord? Is there anything else, Lord? May you make us those kind of people who are constantly, day by day, surrendering everything to you. Show us where we need to go, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name.